This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. Thank you all for coming to the Forum on Contemporary Europe. My name is Roland Shu, the Assistant Director of the Forum. I'm very pleased to introduce today's talk. Uh, Christoph Krombez, I suspect for many of you, doesn't need a, a long introduction for, for those of you who are just joining us today. A professor at the University of Leuven in Belgium and also visiting professor here in the Forum on Contemporary Europe at the Freeman's Bodley Institute for International Studies. I'm very pleased to have Christoph with us as a leading member and uh, uh, helper in the brainstorming of programming here. Uh, today, uh, for this talk, we are focusing on the issues surrounding uh, states in the European Union and uh, calls for potentially renegotiating uh, federal, national, local, communal sovereignty. You've seen on, at the forum, some of you have been present at our presentations and discussions of other related issues, topics in the Iberian Peninsula, uh, autonomy movements of the Basque region, Catalan region. Uh, we'll be looking at others as the year goes on and into the fall and winter. Today we really go to the heart of the matter. I think we can say the heart of Europe, of old Europe, and of the question of Belgium. And I think we have both a focus on the critical issues facing this case study, as we really have the question about Belgium itself. And I know we have some who have a, a uh, personal interest in the, in the place itself but also extrapolating it to the, the question of typology and how to understand the relationship between European Union and its further integration of sovereignty over and uh, uh, concerning uh, local politics and potentially its facilitation, we might say, of such movements for devolution. <coughs> uh, so without further ado, please help me uh, welcome Christoph Krombetz. Thank you very much, Roland. I'm very happy to be here and to give a talk on Belgium. Um, I've given uh, many talks at Stanford, but I've never talked, uh, given a talk about Belgium, neither here nor anywhere else in the world. So uh, for me, it was kind of an exercise to order my thoughts on uh, what is going on politically in uh, my native country. Um, this is maybe not going to be a typical academic talk, or at least uh, the uh, not typical for the ones that uh, I usually give. There's no model or anything in this uh, in this uh, presentation. On the other hand, I hope to go a little bit beyond uh, a journalistic account of what is happening in uh, Belgium. And specifically, I will try to give a lot of background and also historical background, maybe a little bit too much so uh, in the opinions, in the minds of some, maybe um, I don't know what you uh, think about it. I will try to talk for about 45 minutes, I think, and then uh, we can uh, have uh, some discussion and some uh, uh, question time. Um, the way I want to do this is I want first want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, economic uh, data, and uh, basically, even though I agree um, with probably what most of you think, uh, that Belgium is a fairly insignificant country on the face of the earth. Uh, <laughs> what I'm going to do in the first point is try to show you that Belgium is a tremendously important country uh, in the world uh, for the US and for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Then I'll take you through uh, Belgium's history. I'll say a few words about um, Belgian history before the country, uh, Belgium, 
uh, actually existed. I'll actually go back all the way back to uh, Julius Caesar. Uh, so I'll cover 2,000 years in a couple of minutes. Um, by the way, when I s use words like Belgium, Flanders, uh, the Netherlands, Holland, and stuff like that, I will usually, unless I uh, indicate uh, differently, I will refer to the um, countries and the regions as they are known today. Um, the borders have changed a lot, um, but I will refer to them as they exist, uh, as the borders are today. Mm -hmm. Then I will talk about um, the first years of Belgium uh, after 1830, how uh, a, demo a democratic system in Belgium was set up, um, about the end of the unitary state and the creation of the federal state, and then about recent events, uh, last year's election. And uh, one of the issues of the day, BHV, I'll explain what BHV is, and then I'll formulate some uh, tentative uh, conclusions. Okay, the numbers now to show that Belgium is indeed a tremendously important country, uh, even though you were not aware of it. Uh, there's about 10.7 million people in Belgium, uh, not all that big, the 77th country in the world uh, in terms of population. Um, if you look at uh, GDP, uh, GDP is about 450 billion uh, US dollars. That I think these are the figures of last year, which put, puts Belgium uh, in the number 18 in terms of uh, size of countries' economies, uh, so um, so if there were a G18, I guess Belgium uh, would be in it. <laughs> uh, GDP per capita is about uh, $43,000, and that's the number for last year, um, which puts Belgium on the 17th spot. A lot of the countries that are ahead of Belgium are even smaller, I have to say. In terms of a trade with the U.S., um, the U.S. actually has a significant budget surplus, sorry, a trade surplus with uh, Belgium. Mm -hmm. The uh, Belgium only exports about 15 million um, worth into, uh, of, of goods into Belgium and into the U.S., I'm sorry, and uh, about 25, um, actually, no, I'm not sure whether this should be million or billion, but anyway, um, it's probably billion, I would think. Um, um, if you look at exports, actually, uh, that's another <laughs> thing that is probably worth pointing out. Uh, if you look at Belgian exports, 430 billion, it's about the same as GDP, almost. Uh, it's about 95% or so of uh, GDP that Belgium exports. Uh, another thing that is even more uh, surprising, maybe, to some, is if you look at uh, foreign, direct in foreign direct investment in Belgium, uh, last year uh, the number was $72 billion, uh, which makes Belgium the fifth largest recipient of foreign direct investment in the world, and actually the largest recipient per capita. Um, and the figures for outflows actually are uh, pretty similar. So anyway, um, this to show that Belgium, even though it's a small country, is not all that insignificant. I told you, talking about uh, Belgian history, that I would take you back to uh, Julius Caesar. And partially as a joke, but also to because there's some relevance to uh, what he said. Um, so if we go back in history, uh, where Belgium was in uh, different uh, eras, if I think back about my uh, history classes in primary school and in secondary school and stuff like that, we often start with the Greeks and stuff like that, of course, and uh, the Assyrians and all these people. Uh, but then we really start talking more about Belgium when uh, with the as part of the uh, Roman Empire. So Belgium was like on the borders of the uh, Roman Empire, mm -hmm. and Julius Caesar actually conquered it around uh, 50 BC. 
And he had he pronounced some very famous words about Belgium, at least famous in Belgium. Huh? <laughs> and what he basically said was, um, and here's the quote, Omnium fortissimus in Belga, which is often quoted in Belgium. Huh? The Belgians are the bravest of all. And then he explained why. Uh, he gave three reasons, which are basically, were all basically all the same. Huh? The third reason was what I wrote down here, Proteria quote, proximity sunt Germanis, because they are the closest to the Germans. Huh? So in fact, what uh, Julius Caesar was saying was uh, that the Belgians was, were braver than all the French, but not quite as brave as the Germans. So uh, maybe you could say that in 2,000 years' time, even though this was not a politically correct statement, uh, that in 2,000 years' time, not much has changed. Uh, but anyway, the important point is, even 2,000 years ago, Belgium was sort of at the intersection of um, Latin culture and uh, more Germanic culture. Later on, in the 9th century, uh, Belgium was part of the uh, uh, Charlemagne's empire. Charlemagne, who was born in Belgium, close to uh, Liège, uh, close to the German border. And after his death and the death of his uh, son, Belgium ended up in this middle empire. When the empire was divided into three pieces, Belgium ended up in the middle. And then later on, it was sort of tossed around uh, from France to Germany and back and forth a few times. Mm -hmm. And in fact, most of what is now Belgium became part of Germany, of the Holy Roman Empire, except for uh, what was then called Flanders, which was actually just a small part of current day Flanders on the, uh, close to the coast, which at that time was part of France, mm -hmm. the only part of France at that time that is no longer part of France. Mm -hmm. Now, the Holy Roman Empire sort of, sort of disintegrated, and that's when Belgium sort of went through its golden years, a long period from the 12th to the 16th century, where cities and states, provinces, acquired a lot of independence and uh, used that um, uh, to good effect and became uh, some of the richest areas in uh, Europe of that time. So that's when Bruges, Ghent, Brussels, Antwerp, and a number of other Flemish cities uh, sort of became some of the most important economic and cultural centers, centers in the world. And if you go and visit Belgium uh, today, most of the city centers date back to that period. Uh, so that if you look at Belgium in history, and that was probably the time that Belgium was relatively uh, the wealthiest. In the 15th century, um, the low countries, so Belgium, Luxembourg, and, um, and uh, Holland, the Netherlands, became part of the Habsburg Empire. Um, that basically uh, reached its peak uh, geographically under Charles V, who was born also in Belgium, in Ghent. And then uh, some of the most dramatic events happened in uh, Belgian history. In the 16th century, Charles V, uh, when before his death, divided uh, the Habsburg Empire into two pieces. Uh, he gave his son, Philip II, uh, Spain, and he also gave uh, the Low Countries to uh, Philip. What happened then? was that the Low Countries were not all that happy because they were governed from Spain, they had to pay t too high taxes, there was not enough religious freedom, so they rebelled against the king, and uh, then the king went on and sent in his, sent in his army, um, and he managed to recapture about half of the territory of the Low Countries, which is Belgium today. Uh, Antwerp, uh, the city of Antwerp, which is almost on the Dutch border, fell in 1585, and that sort of was the end of uh, the 
low countries being uh, together as one uh, political entity. What happened then was very uh, dramatic for, what it, for current day Belgium, the southern Netherlands. Basically, uh, all the uh, non-Catholics, or most of the non-Catholics, and most of the people who uh, were engaged in business and had some money fled to uh, Holland, to Amsterdam. Holland then had its golden century, and uh, some of them even uh, migrated further on uh, as uh, none of you may know, or some of you may know, uh, uh, some, the, some of the people who bought Manhattan uh, from the uh, Native Americans uh, were actually not Dutch, but had emigrated from uh, the French part of Belgium to uh, the Netherlands and then onward to the United States. So Belgium had a tremendous impact on uh, US history. <laughs> uh, later on, not, not much happened in Belgium after um, the Netherlands were split. Belgium was part of the Austrian uh, Empire. Uh, the Spaniards were there until the uh, early 18th century. Then Belgium was part of Austria. After the French Revolution, part of France. After the Vienna Con Congress in 1815, uh, the Netherlands were briefly reunited until 1830. And in 1830, the year that Belgium was created, there was actually a rebellion uh, in uh, Brussels against the Dutch king, uh, William. This was a month after uh, the revolution, or one of the many revolutions in uh, Paris. Uh, not a coincidence that it was just a month after. Also, in this respect, not much has changed. Uh, when I'm in Belgium, uh, and uh, I, I um, hear that there's a strike in France, uh, I know that it won't take uh, many, uh, all that many days until there's a strike in uh, Belgium, and because apparently that is the way it works. Uh, um, people see that there's a strike in France, so they believe they have to do uh, the same thing. There's a saying, when it rains in Paris, it pours in Belgium, in Brussels. So that applies to these kind of things also. So there was some kind of a rebellion in uh, Brussels. There were three main, uh, two main reasons uh, for this. First, the, uh, the people, uh, I mean, the people who were engaged in trade, the bourgeois, they uh, were uh, sick of the uh, centralization of power uh, by the king, uh, who resided in Holland most of the time. On top of that, the Catholic Church was not very happy because uh, they distrusted uh, the Protestant uh, king in, um, in uh, Holland. So these two forces united and tried to get rid of uh, the king and tried to um, make Belgium an independent country. Now, this would not have worked without international support. France was very eager to get this. They sort of thought this could be an intermediate step towards uh, annexation. And England was happy about a split also because uh, they were not all that happy about, about uh, the fact that Belgium had a heavy industry and Holland had a big fleet and stuff like that. There was too much of a threat for uh, England, so they were happy to see the Netherlands split again also. So the Kingdom of Belgium was then, was then created in 1830, after uh, the Dutch troops were defeated uh, with the help of uh, French troops. And uh, for the first 50 years, those two groups, the Catholics and the liberals, the bourgeoisie that created uh, Belgium, uh, led the country uh, mostly together, sometimes uh, separately. Now, what did this elite, this, this uh, a group of people, what kind of a country did they set up? 
while they uh, did very well for themselves, they gave Belgium a very liberal constitution with, of course, a special position for the Catholic Church. They made sure that uh, the right to vote was limited, as was not unusual at that time, of course, uh, uh, to um, themselves, basically to people like them, uh, people, men, uh, who paid a certain amount of income taxes or who are members of the nobility or the clergy. In total, at that time, fewer, fewer than 1% of the people actually had the right to vote. They also established the language uh, that they spoke, French, as the only official language in Belgium, even though uh, a majority of the population actually did not speak uh, French. And uh, economically, then, they, um, they basically did very well. There was an industrial revolution around that time, and Belgium had coal mines and a steel industry in the southern part of the country. And uh, the group of people that had put Belgium together uh, prospered as a result of that. Now, over the following um, 100 years or so, what happened was that, uh, or the, the evolution that I want to focus on here, is that uh, the right to vote was extended in two or three steps, and that as that happened, that uh, more social policies uh, were implemented, and also, uh, together with that, that uh, the northern part of the country uh, got more rights in the sense that its language was also recognized as an official language in uh, Belgium. Hmm? Now, one important thing maybe to mention also uh, is that uh, this period of collaboration between the two groups, the Catholics and the Liberals, that had put Belgium together ended in 1880, around the 1880, because the Liberals sort of wanted to get rid of the influence of the Catholic Church in the education system, and the Catholic Church reacted very uh, ferociously, set up its own education system, and um, instructed people to vote uh, for them, uh, lest they be uh, excommunicated and end up in hell. And the result of that was that the Catholic Party uh, gained power on its own in 1884 and preserved power for uh, 62 years without uh, interruption. Um, then, as I said, the right to vote was extended. In 1893, uh, every man was given the right to vote, even though they did not all have the same uh, number of votes. Uh, the Socialist Party was uh, established um, in uh, 1885 and quickly became the second party uh, in Belgium, the largest party in the industrial area in the south, in the French-speaking part. And as a response to that, the Catholic Party transformed itself into a Christian Democratic Party and moved to the left on economic issues. After World War I, the one-man-one-vote principle was introduced, and I guess you could say as a result of that, to some extent, um, Dutch was recognized as the only official language in the northern part of Belgium, in Flanders, uh, during the uh, interbellum. And just after World War II, the social security system was established uh, in December 1944, when part of Belgium was still occupied by uh, Germany. Women were given the right to vote not until 1948, and interestingly in this context is that it was not the left who pushed for uh, the women right to vote, but the right. Uh, the left didn't like the idea that women would get the right to vote because they thought that uh, priests would exercise too much influence on uh, the behavior, uh, the voting behavior of women. In the meantime, the Christian Democrats continued to dominate the political landscape in Flanders, and the Socialists were dominant in Wallonia. I have two, uh, moving on to the post-World War II period, I have two 
uh, graphs on this, uh, maybe to illustrate the uh, the difference in um, in power of the different parties. This is um, a graph that illustrates the strength of the different political parties in uh, Flanders. So if you look at the first bar, 1946, the first election after World War II, orange is the Christian Democrats, blue is the liberals, and red is the uh, socialists. I have green or dark green for uh, the communists. So if you look at Flanders, um, the Christian Democratic Party almost obtained 60% of the seats this is seats, not voting behavior, but it's about the same. Almost 60% of the seats after uh, World War II in 1946 and remained around that level all the way up to 1961. Um, the Liberal Party only got about 10% of the seats and the Socialists uh, around 30. Now, what happened in the meantime, I'll just point at a few uh, important evolutions. At the end of the 60s, sorry, at the end of the 50s, early 60s, nationalist parties came up, and they reached their peak in the 70s, about 20% of the seats. Then they started their decline, uh, but part of their electorate was taken over by the extreme right, which nowadays in uh, Flanders has about 20% of the seats. The extreme right actually also took quite a bit of votes, most of their votes, from the socialists. The votes from the nationalists originally mainly came from the Christian Democrats. Another important thing that happened was in the 1961-65 election, I don't know whether you can see that, from 61 to 65, the liberal support doubled. What had happened there was that the liberals started, uh, basically gave up on their anti-clericalism, on their anti-religious uh, attitude, and started emphasizing economic issues. And as a result of that, over the years, they, their support gains uh, increased from 10 to 20 percent, almost 30 in 2003, but then they lost uh, again pretty heavily. The socialists, uh, the left, uh, usually doesn't attract more than 30 percent of the vote. In the last election, they only got 20 percent of the seats. So if you look at left-right division, center-left, center-right, you could say that Usually about 70-80% of the seats in Flanders are for parties that are on the center-right. And uh, the last election in 2007 is an extreme uh, example of that. The picture is very different if you look at, um, if you look at the French part of the uh, country. There, uh, I have ranked the parties a little bit differently because the Christian Democrats are on the left of the liberals in, in the French part of the country. But there, the socialists are a lot more powerful. If you look at the 46 election, they had about 40% of the vote. It increased at some point, and it decreased again. It increased again to um, about 45% in 1987, and then it sort of slowly uh, decreased. There were also nationalist parties there that uh, were at their peak in the 1970s. The extreme right has never really taken off, at least not after World War II. Uh, they were very strong before World War II, but after World War II has never taken off. Um, to some extent, because the Socialist Party has very well um, had set up a whole structure of clientelism or, or that uh, is very well preserved. The other thing that sh uh, should be noted, that just like in the Flemish part of the country, the Christian Democrats lost quite a bit of votes to the Liberals, especially in the beginning of the 60s and then also later on, but they never really recovered that. In Flanders, the party sort of recovered from that to some extent. Um, the Christian Democrats in the French part of the country have completely lost their right wing and are now sort of a uh, center-left party uh, that is close to the Socialist Party. 
Okay. Um, going back to um, political history and to uh, some important evolutions after World War II, um, what happened after World War II is basically uh, in the first 20 years or so, the, what you could refer to as the end of the unitary centralized uh, state, a Belgian uh, government. Mm. Uh, some evolutions that were important in this context uh, was uh, were the political crises in the 1950s. There were two main crises that uh, probably brought uh, the country closer to civil war than has ever happened. Uh, one issue was whether King Leopold uh, III should return to Belgium after World War II. There was a referendum on this in 1950 and uh, the king won 58% uh, of the vote, but the, uh, the king did not have a majority in the southern part, in the French-speaking part of the country. He won 70% in the north and only around 40% or so in the south. Um, as a result of this, uh, the king abdicated then, and then his uh, son uh, took over. Uh, you could argue that this was sort of the end of the unitary state, because uh, the will of the majority was uh, not respected, which is maybe a good thing in a, in a, a country that has more than one ethnic group. Uh, but in any case, um, it's sort of clear that at a point that uh, Flanders obtained more political rights, that some people were not happy uh, having a centralized uh, state anymore. Uh, what happened then in the 1960s was that Flanders became more the economic center uh, to a large extent uh, thanks to uh, foreign direct investment uh, from uh, U.S. companies. Um, and uh, Flanders also gained more political power, especially also since for the first time there was a political class, a group of people who had been uh, through education, through the whole entire education system up to uh, university level education in Flemish. Uh. So this was the first time after World War II that it's, this kind of thing happened. Uh. Um, the result of these evolutions was basically that the linguistic border was fixed in 1962, maybe the first step towards uh, uh, devolution, towards a more federal system. Then there were demands on both sides in Flanders, in Wallonia, and also in Brussels for more cultural and econo economic autonomy. Economic autonomy mostly in the French <coughs> part of the country because they wanted to uh, preserve or keep uh, the, uh, the uh, coal mines and the steel industry that were in pretty bad shape. They wanted to keep that going, whereas in Flanders there was more of a demand for cultural autonomy because uh, they wanted uh, the, uh, basically the Dutch language to be promoted. Um, the main political parties split, if, um, all three, the socialists, Christian Democrats and liberals, um, they fell apart in two groups. So today, there are two Christian Democratic parties in Belgium, two socialists, and two uh, liberal parties, and some of them barely talk to each other. This is part of what the problem of what is going on now, that the Christian Democratic <coughs> parties have not really talked to each other, uh, or had not talked to each other for years. And then most importantly, um, Belgium was turned into a federal state, a federal country, in uh, five steps, basically. There were five constitutional reforms between 1970 and uh, 2003, and uh, in, as a result of these uh, reforms, more powers were handed over to the regions and uh, communities. So what does a federal state look like, in Belgium at least? Uh, well, it's a little bit uh, 
more complicated than most federal states. It's not as simple uh, as to say, well, there are three regions. Uh, no, they set up a system with regions and communities. The regions have, an author have authority over areas that are related to the territory or, or um, matters that are related to territory, uh, the economy, infrastructure, environment, agriculture, and stuff like that. The communities uh, have authority over personal personal matters, education, culture, parts, part of the uh, healthcare system, and stuff like that. Uh, the regions are Flanders, Wallonia, and Brussels. The communities are the Flemish, the French, and the small uh, German communi community. In Flanders, to make things more complicated, in Flanders they have merged these two in institutions. So basically, uh, the story is that Flanders wanted two communities, and the French part of the country wanted three regions. So there are there's a system of regions and a system of communities. But anyway, what powers has the federal government reserved for itself then? Social security, very importantly. Justice, uh, the, the court system and the prison system. The functioning of the labor markets, most of it. Uh, foreign aid, uh, foreign affairs, development aid and defense. And also an important part of the federal budget, still the railway system. Unlike the rest of the inf uh, infrastructure and transport policy. Now, it's important to point out that the tax system is completely organized by the federal government. So the states, uh, Flanders and, and uh, the other states, they get their money from the federal budget. And the other thing is that even though the Constitution says that, that um, the government and the parliament should, uh, may, should reverse this, basically, they have, have to pass a law to reverse this, the residual powers are with the federal government, which basically means that all the powers that are not assigned to the uh, regions and the communities rest with the federal government. Now, I'm not a legal scholar, but I've read some stuff that legal scholars have written about this, eh? and they basically say that these two things are actually essential requirements of uh, a federal state, that is that the different components have the authority to tax and that they have the residual powers. Yeah. So in Belgium that's not the case. So you may wonder whether Belgium is actually a federal state, even though one of the first artic articles of the Constitution says that it is. Now another way of determining whether Belgium is really a federal state is you could look at the budget. Hmm. I'll skip this for a second. Uh, what does the government budget look like? If you look at the entire government budget, um, the total budget is about 150 billion, which is about euros, which is about half of GDP, almost half of GDP. The most important part is the social security system, which officially is not most of that is not part of the federal budget, uh, but it's it's run by the federal government. Uh, the social security system includes pensions, uh, health care, uh, unemployment aid. Uh, child allowances, and a few other things. 60 billion. So 60 billion, that's about 20% of uh, GDP. The federal budget itself is only 30 billion, other than the Social Security. 30 billion, so only about 10% of GDP, almost half of which is going to interest payments on Belgium's debt. And Belgium has one of the highest uh, debts in uh, at least per capita or relative to GDP in uh, Europe, still about 90% or something like that of GDP. And last year they paid 13.5 billion uh, euros in uh, interest payments. All the debt was kept by the federal government. None of the debt was handed over to uh, 
the regions. <coughs> and then they spend money on transport, most of it for the railway system, defense, foreign affairs, most on development and so on. The regions and communities get about 36 billion, local governments 22 billion, and the EU gets a contribution of 3 billion. The regions and communities, um, they um, spend about half of their money on education. An important issue uh, to mention in this context is the financial transfers between the two regions, because this is uh, something that people in Flanders are very upset about. Uh, the total transfers these days are estimated to be about 10 billion euros, which is about 6.6% of uh, Flemish GDP. So this was, these are the numbers for 2003. About a third uh, is as a result of the social security um, system, a third or so uh, are interest payments, uh, then the federal budget also includes transfers, and then the regions, the way the regions are, um, are basically receiving their money also implies a transfer. Uh, of these 10 billion, 80% uh, goes to uh, Wallonia, which is about, for Wallonia, 12% of GDP. To, uh, by to give you a comp an idea, uh, Ireland, in the 1980s and the early 90s, when uh, it received a lot of money from the EU, got about 7 or 8% of its uh, GDP in uh, aid from the EU. Uh, so here the transfer to Wallonia is about 12% of their GDP, and in Brussels it's about 8% of uh, GDP. Um, prior to uh, World War II, when France was not quite as rich as the French part of the country, um, the, at that point, the income tax system was not so important uh, and there was mostly property taxes and stuff like that. The result of that was that Flanders paid a proportional share of, its, of the tax burden and um, while actually most of the money was spent on infrastructure to support the industry in the southern part of the country. Um, another point that I should mention, going back a couple of slides, is that rights actually that um, the constitution awarded to the minorities, to the French-speaking minority. Um, and I think I need to mention three elements in here because it is relevant to explain the current situation. Uh, the federal government, according to the constitution, needs to contain, consist of an equal number of Flemish and uh, Francophone uh, government ministers. So in practice, that means that um, you need the support of some major uh, parties in both parts of the country in order to be able to form a government and to keep a government going. Uh, regarding constitutional amendments and other major pieces of legislation, they require a special majority, two-thirds uh, of both houses of uh, parliament, and a majority in both uh, main, the main language groups. So you cannot pass a major uh, institutional reform without having the support of a majority of the uh, members of parliament uh, in both parts of the country. And then on other pieces of regulation, of legislation, there are also mechanisms usually referred to as conflicts of interest and alarm bell procedures that are written into the constitution that allow minorities to delay uh, the legislative process. Okay. Um, now, what is the result, actually, for uh, current-day politics in Belgium? Uh, the result is that there is major gridlock on pretty much any uh, issue that you can think of, um, to a large extent because uh, the voting behavior and 
political preferences in both parts of the country are very different, as we saw in the two uh, graphs that I showed you. Um, now, the result of that is also that most political issues then uh, become a regional issue and have basically uh, some undertones that are uh, that oppose basically uh, Flanders and uh, the French part of the country. So, and this happens, of course, when you talk uh, about uh, the things that they are talking about now: the functioning of the labor markets, the functioning of the healthcare system, and things like that. Um, or it can be about uh, far less important things. You could say Im immigration and, and things like that. There's always, almost always, uh, disagreements along linguistic lines, which is more important than the disagreement within the different language groups. Now, as a result of this, as a result of this disagreement on most important issues, political parties, in a way, have it very easy because they can always blame the parties in the other part of the country for not being able to achieve the goals that they set out in their policy programs. And if they fail in the policies that they implement themselves in the regions, they can also blame it on the other part of the country. So this creates a situation where political parties don't really take much responsibility. And they can get away with a lot of things um, uh, at election time, uh, also uh, with uh, quite a bit of uh, corruption. And uh, there have been all kinds of scandals that, at least uh, to some extent, parties have not been uh, punished for. Now, what has been the reaction in both parts of the countries of the country to this gridlock? In Flanders, this has led to demands for more autonomy, uh, to the right to set up its own tax system however limited, the right to regulate its own labor markets, to get some aspects of the social security system, the justice system, and so on. On the other hand, in the French part of the country, maybe not uh, surprisingly, uh, most parties just want to preserve uh, the status quo. The result has been, when we look at the previous uh, governments that consisted of liberals, socialists, and greens, is that very little action was taken on economic issues, on institutional issues, uh, for the period that these two governments uh, were in power, for the eight-year periods from 1999 to 2007, that these two uh, governments were in power. Um, now, the result of this was that in Flanders, people uh, felt very uh, frustrated and uh, felt like they were being plundered by uh, the other part of the country, feelings that were exacerbated when uh, more and more stories about corruption scandals in the French part of the country, especially in the Socialist Party, uh, made the headlines. Now, what was the result of this uh, when the elections in 2007 came around? Uh, well, I'll first look at the, uh, at the election results. Um, if you look at the strength of the different political groups these days, you can see that the three largest groups are uh, not all that far apart. The Christian Democrats obtained the largest number of votes, 24%, just like the Liberals. The, the Christian Democrats got 40 seats, the Liberals 41, and then the Socialists 34. If you, so you could say, well, there's at least one government that only consists of two parties or two groups that you could form. The Christian Democrats and the Liberals can form a government together. They have a majority. It's the only coalition of two that can give you a majority. So you could say, well, um, that's not such a bad result. At least you can form a government. 
you could say, okay, it's, if you look at the evolution, at the changes in the two parts of the country, you could also say this is not a bad result at all, because both parts of the country actually voted the same way, or the evolution at least was the same way. The Christian Democrats won in both parts, the liberals lost in both parts, as, as did the socialists. The extreme right didn't do very well. The Greens won in both parts, and then in France you also had a populist party that uh, was created and that gained a lot of seats. However, if you look at the distribution of seats, uh, there is still a big difference in, uh, in the distribution if you look at left-right. In Flanders, as I, we mentioned earlier, if you look at the center-left, the socialists and the Greens, they only got 18 out of the 88 seats. In the French part of the country, the liberals who won the election, who for the first time ever became the largest, uh, first time since the introduction of the universal suffrage, became the largest party in the French part of the country, they still only have 23 out of the 62 seats. So they can they can do all that much. Okay? So uh, the Flemish Christian Democrats were expected to have a big victory, uh, and they, they realized that the Liberal Party became the biggest party for the first time in the uh, French part of the country. So there was some prospect, for, at least for economic reform, for a centralized government, and maybe even for constitutional reform, because you could say that the Flemish Christian Democrats had a mandate for institutional reform. They had campaigned on this. There were, however, two problems. To form a coalition with Christian Demo Democrats and Liberals, you needed Christian Democrats and Liberals on both sides of the linguistic frontier. Uh, now, the Francophone Christian Democrats, they, as I mentioned earlier, they are more like a party on the center-left. So they were not ready to implement a center-right economic policy. Um, so that was one problem that they had to deal with. And the other problem was, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that on the French on the Francophone sides, neither the Liberals nor the Christian Democrats really wanted a uh, institutional uh, reform. But anyway, they tried to uh, form a Christian Democratic Liberal uh, government. Now, one of the practical problems was also that both the leaders of the Flemish Christian Democrats, Yves Le Terme, and the leader of the Francophone Liberals, Didier Reinders, that they both wanted to be Prime Minister. Now, an interesting thing to point out maybe is that the leader of the Flemish Christian Democrats has a French last name and the leader of the Francophone <laughs> Liberals has a Dutch last name. And the Dutch system is side. So they both wanted to be prime minister. So what deal what kind of deal did they make then? Well the Francophone liberal leader Reiner said okay um, you can be prime minister but you form my government basically. He wanted a center right economic uh, economically center right government. Whereas the Christian Democrats, the Flemish Christian Democrats, wanted a large government that would implement uh, a program of constitutional reform. So Reiner's very smart, told uh, Letemme, why don't you go first and you try to form my government? Maybe hoping that he would fail um, so that he could become <coughs> prime minister. So the problems that were there, uh, we already mentioned to some extent. I mentioned the problems, uh, the Francophone Christian Democrats were on the left, the Francophone liberals, um, they were um, not very keen on devolution. Their leader wanted to become prime minister. Now, the Flemish liberals also did not have much of an incentive to see this uh, attempt working because they basically thought, well, uh, we had a, we suffered a very bad election defeat. The prime minister only got half of the votes that the current prime minister got. So they were humiliated. 
and uh, they basically took a back seat and took any occasion they could to uh, criticize the Christian Democratic leader. Um, on top of that, it has to be said that Lutena, the guy, the leader of the Flemish Christian Democrats, also made a lot of uh, tactical errors and some uh, PR blunders uh, um, that I will not uh, mention. <laughs> In the end, the uh, attempts to form this kind of government failed in November, so five and a half, almost six months after the election, the main reason being that they couldn't agree on a program uh, for devolution to give more powers to the regions. Then the outgoing prime minister, uh, who was still hoping to remain in power, even though he had lost the election, saw his opportunity uh, and he talked the king into asking him to form a government and he tried to reconstitute, to resurrect the outgoing government, which had lost the election, but still would have had a majority with the support of the Green Party. The only problem would have been that uh, it would not have had a majority in the Flemish part and Flanders would have uh, probably uh, reacted very strongly against that. Uh, now, it didn't work because the Flemish socialists who had been badly beaten at the, at the polls and who are in disarray, who were in disarray at that time and are still today, uh, they didn't want to go along with it. So this didn't work. In the end, then, uh, they formed a government uh, with the Flemish Christian Democrats instead of the Francophone Socialists and also with the uh, uh, Francophone uh, Christian Democrats so basically the, the Christian Democrats, the Liberals and the, the Francophone Socialists uh, to pretend that there was a government basically uh, the outgoing Prime Minister formed an interim government that would stay in power until Easter and the objective of the government was to uh, agree to prepare the groundwork for a round, a first round of uh, more uh, devolution. And that's what happened. They negotiated for more devolution. They agreed on a very minimalistic program that amounts to almost nothing. But Yves Le Temer, then the leader of the Flemish Christ Christian Democrats, became prime minister uh, on uh, Holy Thursday, on March 20th. And he formed a government that, just like the outgoing interim government, did not really have a clear program because they didn't agree on any major policy issues. If you ask me what the main uh, policy reforms are that the government stands for, I would not be able to uh, tell you. Um, so the result is basically that the status quo, uh, to by and large, is uh, preserved. Or, to use the words of the Speaker of the House, a Flemish Christian Democrat, uh, these are the words that he said about the interim government, but I would guess that he also thinks the same about the current government, even though he would not say so because his uh, party leader is prime minister. There are 15 ministers, but there is no government. So that is uh, the situation that Belgium is in uh, today. One could argue that the fact that the parties are not able to agree on anything, and the fact that uh, they cannot even agree on allowing uh, each other to go their own way within a federal state, that you could argue that this uh, is the end of the federal state, basically. Um, then there's another issue that maybe I should mention if I still have a little bit of time. Um, there's the issue of the electoral district of Brussels, uh, Brussels of Villevoorde, BHV, yeah, which may actually already uh, lead to the collapse of the government uh, next Thursday, a week from today. <laughs> so um, maybe um, the government will not last much more than 50 days or something like that. Uh. I don't know whether you want to go into this. This is actually an issue that I think is not important. Uh, but it attracts a lot of uh, attention in the media because it's very symbolic. 
The problem is that the electoral district of Brussels is larger than Brussels. It also has parts of Flanders in it. And at some point in 2003, the Constitutional Court, sorry, the outgoing government, uh, the Liberals and the Socialists and the Greens, decided to have provincial electoral districts throughout the country, just before the 2003 election. Now, the only place where they didn't do that was in Brussels. They didn't want to restrict the electoral district of Brussels to just Brussels because the result would be that Francophone people living in Flanders in the district of, district of Brussels, if the district were limited to the province of Brussels or the region of Brussels, would no longer be able to vote for candidates in Brussels. So the government sort of came up with uh, some special arrangements for Brussels. Some people went to court, to the constitutional court, and the constitutional court ruled that the arrangement was uh, unconstitutional. And they said basically that if the government wants to have provincial districts, that they have to have provincial districts everywhere, including uh, in Brussels. And they also said you have to change the election, the rules, the electoral rules, by the next election, the next scheduled election in 2007. The outgoing government didn't manage to solve the problem that itself had created. And in order to get around the ruling by the Constitutional Court, they called the election a week before the scheduled date, so that in theory they could still use the old rules to have the 2007 election. Now they cannot do that anymore. So the result is that um, ordinarily, if there's no agreement on policy, you call a new election. But they cannot call a new election because uh, they cannot use, there's no electoral law that they can use because the Constitutional Court declared it unconstitutional. So, uh, and they cannot, in order to change the uh, electoral law, you need a government to uh, sign it into law, but there is no government. Uh, there is no government because one of the reasons is because they cannot agree on a change of the electoral law. So anyway, the Flemish parties wanted the electoral district to be equal to the region, to the province of Brussels. The Francophone parties, they want to preserve the current system and if that doesn't work, then they want to change the borders of the province uh, so that it would be uh, equal to the current borders of the district or something like that. Uh, anyway, in my opinion, this is just a symbolic issue. It's not really the most important one. But anyway, it creates a lot of problems. There may be a vote on this uh, on uh, Thursday already, so it could bring the government to an end. As a conclusion, I think I've talked long enough. Um, I want to just say a few things. Uh, my first observation is that Belgium, even disregarding most of what I said, is not a very easy country to govern. And there's two large groups, not quite equal, 60-40, 60 Flanders, 40 uh, French-speaking. There aren't all that many countries that you can find like that uh, in, let's say, in Europe or in North America. Maybe Canada is an example. Huh? Um, that sort of indicates already, I guess, that it must be difficult to govern a country like that. And the Czech Republic and Slovakia, they broke up uh, more than 10 years ago. So anyway, so that's already one problem. The other problem is that there used to be a, a group of, uh, one of the two ethnic groups used to be richer, used to govern, and um, had outlawed the language of the other group, which uh, still plays uh, some role today. Um, probably explain some of the resentment that exists or a lack of affinity for the country Belgium that exists in the north. Uh, the smaller group then has lost a lot of its economic and political leadership 
and um, probably is also a little bit um, as a result of that has some um, how would I say some uh, sort of longs for uh, better times uh, is nostalgic about this um, they voted in a different way and then there's also of course the uh, financial transfers um, now one of the questions that I have and that I cannot really uh, explain is that okay the French the Francophone parties, they stick to the status quo, they defend the status quo with a lot of vigor and so far very effectively, but one could wonder whether this is not a very short-sighted policy. Because if you look at polls and if you look at elections over time, the extreme right and the populist right now in Flanders, they are gaining. So does it really pay off for the Francophone parties to uh, hang on to the status quo if that only makes public opinion in Flanders more radical. What are they thinking? I don't know. Uh, maybe that illustrates that public opinion in Flanders and in Wallonia is very different. Just the fact that I don't know uh, what they think. Uh, political parties in the French part of the country. Maybe they think the Flemish parties will give in in the end because, I don't know, uh, the cost of a split would be too high in the short run. I don't know. Maybe they don't mind a radicalization of the Flemish public opinion because they think they can still govern with a minority uh, in Flanders, they may th think, okay, we can convince the Prime Minister, the, the previous one, the Liberals and the Socialists, and if we can convince the Green, we have a majority, we don't need uh, to have a majority in Flanders. Or maybe their attitude is, okay, um, this is all going to go to an end anyway, uh, let's just make the best of it and uh, maximize our benefit for the few years that uh, we have left in this uh, union. I don't know. Then you could also wonder, okay, why, why is Flanders being, um, even though they talk a lot, or there's, at least in the past year, there's been a lot of talk about the breakup, why doesn't Flanders stick to its uh, demands and it takes a more aggressive uh, tone? Well, of course, there would be a cost to a breakup and stuff like that uh, in the short run, so maybe they pay a lot of attention to the short-term uh, problems. But... I think one of the main problems is that uh, Flanders and Flemish political parties have not really thought through the process of how to break up. If you ask Flemish politicians, uh, has anybody put together a scenario, what you're going to do, how you're going to do this, they haven't thought about this. So that sort of makes any threat uh, to break up uh, very empty. As long as the alternative for devolution is the status quo, the French parties are not going to change anything. Um, if for the Flemish parties for some reason uh, shy away from a breakup because they have never really thought uh, the whole process through uh, very much. Of course, Flemish uh, political leaders, including the current and the previous prime minister, uh, they may want more devolution, but then if they can become prime minister, they may like being office, in office so much that they forget about the devolution. Uh, and in the end, there's one big problem, Brussels. Uh, if Brussels had not been there, I think that Belgium would have split a long time ago already. Now, in the current context, nobody knows what to do with Brussels. So maybe they think, need to think a bit better about that also. One last remark to please roll until they talk about the EU uh, in this talk. Uh, <laughs> effect, of course, the, the fact that the EU is there, that there is an internal market, and that there is a euro, reduces the cost of political instability and of a breakup. Mm. Uh, if there had been no euro and we would still have been using the Belgian franc, 
then the instability of the past year would have uh, led to uh, a lot of instability on the currency markets and that would probably have uh, given an incentive to politicians to get to an agreement. Now that incentive is not there. And the incentive also to uh, preserve Belgium in a way is not there because economically there would not be all that big of an impact if the country were to split apart. So I haven't really answered the question whether this is the end of Belgium. I've just presented two other questions to you. But this is sort of what I want to say, and I'll be happy to answer some questions if there is time left. Thanks. Thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.